I don't think we have to be fanatically passionate about everything we do, but I like the word like. We have to like what we do. We have to like who our customers are. We have to like the results we put out. It just really helps and it makes companies better. I agree. I don't think it's obsession as much as you like it and you're being genuine about it. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast. This is Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett, episode number 36. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well. It's fall. Portland's gorgeous in the fall. Ah, beautiful. Yeah, you get all the colors. Yeah. Yeah. So what is in the cart? Do we have an oon in the cart? We have an oon. And the oon for the day is a fairly, hopefully understandable one. It has two gentlemen. One is looking happy and relaxed. The other has his arms crossed. And they both have thought bubbles or speech bubbles over their head. And one of them says, I love Venn diagrams. And the other one overlaps with his. And he says, Venn diagrams are rubbish. So we actually have a mixed bag of, I love Venn diagrams are rubbish. And Venn diagrams is the shared common thing between the two sets of words. That's brilliant. So the speech bubbles are in fact the Venn that. It's kind of weird, but I do love the, I think the weird thing about Venn diagrams is they reduce everything into dichotomies or dichotomies. Because you really can't go much further than three circles in a Venn diagram and have it still make any kind of sense. You know? That's true. The complexity really, speaking of complexity, we're going to come yeah. to that, of course. <laughs> but you're right. The moment they go beyond three or four, it's hard to, it's hard to see what's happening. But everything is inside a set and Venn diagrams for set theory. So you can apply it to anything you want. Yeah. Well, I think what's funny is actually as part of the set theory, they're brilliant. As part of everyday marketing, all of a sudden the idea that our really thickly rich, complicated jobs could be reduced to two circles, two sets. Eh, I think we've gone a little farther. Well, if you're doing target marketing, it can tell you the over the intersection between multiple markets. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so, uh, we should talk about that too. <laughs> So uh, anyway, but maybe we should move on because we also have another kind of cartoon-like thing. It's not quite a cartoon, but it has that same brevity and clarity, I think, associated mm -hmm. with it. came from a, a Twitter post by Richard Schotten, who writes and publishes books on implications of behavioral economics and consumer behavior stuff. Anyway, he notes that the agency Pentagram agreed to a $1.5 million fee to design Citibank's logo, Paula Scher sketched out the design in five minutes on a napkin in the first briefing meeting, answering questions on the cost for so little effort. She said it's seconds done in 34 years and attached to his tweet are pictures of the original sketches of the Citibank logo. And they're the Citibank logo. They are the logo. So what's your reaction to that? Well, I think it, it gets to this really tricky thing, especially for those of us in marketing. I mean, it's true everywhere in business, but especially for those of us in marketing, which is what's the value of that creative work? And yeah. especially with services. I mean, I was recording a video lecture for students today and I was talking about service work and how 
service always has this intangible with it. I mean, I don't know. You go eat at a restaurant. How much value do you get from the staff in that restaurant? I don't know. An economist being purely theoretical will say whatever people will pay for. I'm not sure that's really entirely true. If that staff in that restaurant gets inspires somebody to go do something else, they got something far more from it than just what they paid. But a lot of stuff's intangible and difficult. Yeah. So I totally see it as you do with the idea of a value. In fact, in our own consulting work, we try to shy away from hourly work because I've always thought that not all hours are created equal. And also, I don't like that you have the feeling that the meter is running and you might not communicate, you might not pick up the phone and call or send an email. And and it's a lot better to really think in terms of what is the value of this project that we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. As it relates to this particular sketch, I don't know if it's a 30, 40 years thing or right. maybe even one year. And you were just telling me the story of the Nike logo that was designed by not somebody with 34 years of experience. Yeah, I mean, if you haven't heard the Nike logo, do the swoosh. Not the letters Nike, but the swoosh is that there was a young woman who was taking an accounting class and was a graphic designer and Phil Knight was teaching the accounting class and she was complaining at some point she wasn't making enough money. So he hired her to do some things. And then as part of those things, he came to her one day, said, we need a logo. So she designed the swoosh and it took her, I believe I read 17 and a half hours and she was paid $35 for it. <laughs> I mean, it certainly had yeah, an This is some years ago, but even then that feels pretty low. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Student work. This is what you pay for student work. But I think it, it hits that really weird question of what's that worth? But you said uh, the Phil Knight got back to her later and compensated more, yeah? Yeah, he did. Apparently in 1983, he invited her to some company function and they gave her chocolate swooshes and they gave her a gold a diamond ring that had a swoosh on it and gave her an envelope that had 500 shares of Nike stock, which apparently at that time was worth $85. So now she's been paid $120 for the Nike swoosh. However, the stock eventually rose to, apparently right now it's worth about $4 million. So uh, if she's kept it, she's done okay. I hope she it. did, yes. Well, But right. look, so. she's got a logo that's like one of the most recognized in the world. Mm-hmm. And took her 17 hours, but also wasn't 34 years of experience. I don't know if I kind of buy that angle. In fact, it always like bugs me when people sort of translate that to it. There is definitely something to it. But to me, it's a question of the value versus the question of the expertise and perhaps even luck, but then just being in the zone and grabbing the essence of what is needed and then really nailing it. And sometimes you do. Yeah, and actually, I think that's exactly right here. That The trick is getting a good logo is not as predictable as people would like to think. And so in told in retrospect, this is one of those told in retrospect stories. It sounds like it was inevitable. Well, they hired her, so she was going to do something great. Yeah, I've hired people for logos. It doesn't always work that way, even really good people. The reason I knew a, a brilliant designer here, a guy named Robin Rickenbaugh, they, he and his wife designed the Northwest Airlines logos. I mean, they were a logo people. And when Pepsi would go out for new logos, they'd hire three agencies for ideas. I mean, they knew you couldn't just go to one person and say, give me the logo. They'd hire three and Rickabon Principia Graphica might be one of those, but it's not a predictable thing. I mean, this gets into that complexity that one of the challenges in complexity is too many things emerge over time. Too many things come clear over the time. 
too many things are a question of resonance, as you mentioned, kind of the something happened in that moment where she resonated with something the city bank people might be saying, and out of it came this idea. And you can't predict it. You can't plan it. You have to trust that it'll happen. How do you charge for that? And how do you get paid for that? I think it's a really tricky one. You know, I've talked with my brother who does litigation work. We've talked quite a bit about valuation and courts end up having to go back to very kind of fundamental mm. valuation things mm. uh, because, wow, it is incredible incredibly difficult to know what something is worth. Well, you're right. In fact, the legal profession does need to put a dollar value on things mm -hmm. and they need a process to do that. And it's complicated. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult. So what was uh, Carol Davidson's swoosh worth? Well, I mean, some of that you have to look at in terms of time. What was it worth that year? It might have been worth the $35. You're they right. It is something to get going. Okay, got yeah. going. Great. Okay, we put it on our paper and now we're working. Within the next 10 years, oh, it's worth quite a bit more because now it's on a bunch of shoes, but it's still not worth that much. Now, here we are 40, 50 years, actually 50 years later. Of course, it's worth a lot, but yeah. you can't predict that from the beginning because so many things could have happened. The funny story about it is Phil Knight wasn't that excited by it. Yeah. So she did the switch. <laughs> Apparently, Phil Knight, who founded Nike, was okay, kind of yeah, people do. said they liked him. That he decided to go, okay, we'll use it for a little bit. And of course, it became the foundation of all their future <laughs> branding. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that leads us back to the target marketing. There was a, oh, another oh. tweet stream that actually may be relevant to our Venn diagram. It, it might actually fit with that Venn diagram. <laughs> well, it, it actually just comes down to a very, I mean, it starts with a very simple thought. I can't even remember where the tweet thread started, but the idea was describe the customer as though you like them. Yes. And I saw that and I thought, yeah, that's really important. And a lot of people I found, I've worked with a lot of companies that missed that. I saw somebody do a, a write-up, was writing about it and said, yeah, in the UK, a lot of times they would say, okay, well, we've got these three groups of customers. Yeah, they're all punters, but, you know, which is kind of a derogatory term. And that happens in companies a lot. And I can't quite explain it, but the idea that you should describe the customer as though you like them, I think is a really brilliant fundamental for marketing. I think every marketer should be worried if they're not. This reminded me of the Tom Peters book, In Search of Excellence, or maybe it was the next one after that, like A Passion mm -hmm. for Excellence or something. But one of the points that he was making at that time was the importance of liking what you do, mm -hmm. liking the business that you're in. And the specific use case that I recall was like some waste management company recycling. This was before even the word recycling was a thing. But it was like garbage. And he was talking about this executive at this company and you go to his office and he's got mini garbage trucks and he's got like his, his paperweight is like a crumpled paper or something like that. But he was, the point was that this guy just loves garbage and everything to do with it. Mm -hmm. And he's excited about it and enthused. And so my view was that whatever you like is the business you're in. Mm -hmm. So if your business is X, you might as well like it. You might as well like everything about it, not just the customers. You need to have that sort of passion that you really are trying to grok this business and every aspect of it. And indeed, customers are going to be a part of it. Now, if you don't like the customers or if you don't like actively like them, you're not going to be able to make friends. You're not going to be able to engage. We were just like two days ago, we had a pre-show because there's a big conference coming up and we have a boost there. So we had a pre-show training meeting for the sales staff. And we were just talking about how you engage 
folks that are walking by your booths. Mm-hmm. And the comment I was making was that make friends with them. You're glad to meet them. It's like, no, you're not trying to sell anything. You're just trying to say, hey, are you familiar with what we're doing? And let me tell you what we're doing. And oh, you're not interested. That's fine. But the mode is like you're trying to make friends. You're trying to, you, you like the person. So I feel like that's such a mandatory thing in a big way. It is. I mean, in effect, in advertising. If we would do advertising, a lot of the assume listeners know I made <coughs> infomercials. Did I say that's that? right? Anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, thirty minute uh, commercials. But a lot of the hack infomercials out there hired people, and then they would they had to do this false enthusiasm, and it was really kind of ghastly to watch. And what I would consult and work with talent on is I really want them to like what we were doing, and when they liked what they were doing enough, they just come alive. And there's kind of a passion that shows or an interest that shows when you, you know, there's two ways to look excited. One is to be goofy excited. And the other is to be passionate excited. Mm-hmm. This is my topic. I love mm-hmm. that thing. Now, I, I mean, having said that, I will say, I don't think we have to be fanatically passionate about everything we do, but I like the word like. We have to like what we do. We have to like who our customers are. We have to like the results we put out. It just really helps and it makes companies better. Uh-huh. I agree. I don't think it's obsession as much as you like it and you're being genuine about it, right? You're not faking it. It's just like, I am interested in this area and I'm interested in what you find interesting in it. Mm-hmm. I'm like curious and I'm always learning about this area. That that captures it better. You're right. Yeah. No, I think that, and I think that is it. I think the only reason I make that distinction is we've got all these people out there to preach about, find your passion. I don't know. I mean, my passion might be fly fishing and hiking and reading, and I'm not sure I can make a living at that. So I need to find something I can make a living at that I like. And I did. You know, yeah, I exactly. So, I mean, the other thing is that you're allowed to have more than one passion, Both. right? Human is beings it, are. Is that legal? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> In certain states, yes. I think human beings are complicated beings and you're going to have a lot of different interests and that's more than not only fine, it's actually allows you to be a more comprehensive, a richer perspective about things. One of the odd reasons that this phrase described to customers, though you like them, is particularly important today. And it's actually an old phrase, if I remember correctly, but it's particularly important today is that one thing I'll fault business schools for, and I know that they have big discussions about it, is that there's too little serious work on category product industry Mm. in business training. Somebody gets an MBA and they're told by whoever gives them an MBA that they now are the most qualified people to manage companies, meaning that they're most likely to drive success for that company, except what they know are generic universals. They don't know the category, industry, products, those really specific things. And if anybody says, well, okay, so what's most important for company next? At any point in time, it's rare that it's a general business idea, you know, that it's, that's all it involved. What's most important, even if it's an organizational issue, is how do you organize for this business? You know, if you make and sell house paint like Sherwin-Williams, you have to structure your company around house paint. You cannot mm-hmm. come in with mm-hmm. some arbitrary structure picked up from the guys who make Legos and decide yeah, yeah. structure. You have to structure around the specifics of category industry. And the way that's been separated for MBAs is a serious problem. I think it's actually led to some serious weaknesses and led to people who become too obsessed with it's all about the money and not about enjoying what I do. That's right. Well, I sense a whole bunch of complexity 
<laughs> you do, but and, I and as the author of yeah. the, the future bestseller in complexity in business, what have you to say about this? Well, I think this is the reality. I mean, this is a big part of the reality of business is that a lot of business training is reductionist, which is it's designed to claim there's a universal best way to organize in this situation, or there's universal best decisions at any point in time. And the reality of complexity shows us is there aren't. There aren't these universal bests out there that at any point in time, there are things that work and things that don't work. And you've got to find the things that work. And you learn the universals, but you don't necessarily figure that you can read some book that gives the universal answer to organization and suddenly everything there is to know about organizing the company because you don't. And we talked last week and the or last time in the week kind of before about self-organization. Self-organizing units, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, every company should be watching carefully to see how people naturally organize. It doesn't mean that we follow what they do, but there's something to be learned by how people naturally organize to get something done. Because if people are trying to do something and they love what they do, they figure it out. They figure out how to organize. And so as management, we need to be watching that and leveraging what we can learn. From. And it may not be that's the right way to organize, but maybe they know something we don't about mm -hmm. it and mm -hmm. that we can learn from that and sort something else out and all those things. But there's a lot that kind of emerges from teams. And a lot of times business school universals don't leave room for that. Leave room for the company. Yeah. I mean, yeah. some of that is just customer intimacy because if you are out on the front lines and if, like you said, if you are paying attention and you have passion, you're going to respond to stimulus, stimuli that is right there, first order customer behavior thing. Right. And you're mm -hmm. not sitting in the headquarters, three, four steps removed, yep. trying to interpret the data, right? Just reading reports. And go, and, uh, you're right. No, that's got to be, that's got to be it. I mean, I think another complexity reality we have is if you're sitting in headquarters, we never have enough data. All right. we have at headquarters is the data that either we've asked for or that somebody thought was important to record. Okay, great. We have that data. What about the rest of it? Well, the people on the front lines have that data, but they don't yeah. have the global data. So then you got to the front lines and you talk to people on the front lines and you learn something entirely different. And the true path of the company comes by combining those and trying to find smart ways forward. But we never have all the data we need to make decisions. And that's another kind of truth out of complexity. We like to think that everything is nice and neat, and it isn't. And we have to be able to succeed despite it. And the other thought this gives me is the value of data is proportional to the expertise of the entity that provides it. So if you're out in the front, then your customer data is really valuable. If you're headquarters, you're cross-industry, that's what's valuable. And you have to remember where the value is coming from and preserve it. Yeah, you do. And you have to respect that value. And I mean, so what does corporate have that people on the front line don't have? Well, they have a sense of the general directions of global issues that are happening, of stuff that crosses categories that somebody on the front lines may not have. And we have to, we have to keep aware of that and actually just to wrap it back. And it all goes a lot better if we fundamentally like what we're after or what we're doing, because then we work together to figure it out as opposed to it entirely being politics and who wins this battle and gets the raises, mm -hmm. and all those kinds of things. With complexity in mind, I, I think I, I was wanting to maybe see if we could shift and talk about you for a little. Let's um, do it. Yeah. Our listeners don't always know much about Shaheen. Many of you do. Those who don't, 
He's been involved for decades, if I might say so. The supercomputer show, and it's coming up here, and we're in fact we're gonna go on a one episode hiatus here while he gives Shaheen time. But I thought it'd be interesting for people to hear about this show because it's unusual, especially for a guy who's been to retail oriented trade shows for years. They're very different from what this is. Yeah, right on. I mean the supercomputing market is what you and I worked at mm -hmm. years ago mm -hmm. before you moved on to do what you've described and with a non-trivial B2C component to it. And I've sort of stayed in that. Now, supercomputing is a very special market. And there's an annual conference called Supercomputing for the past like 35 years. This year is the 35th wow. year. Wow. And there's something like a dozen people who have attended every one of them. And they're known as perennials and they all get together and they get their photos taken, et cetera, et cetera. So supercomputing is the infrastructure for big time science, weather forecasting, car design, airplane design, but also increasingly for artificial intelligence. <laughs> it's the same sort of algorithm, the same mathematics, the same skill sets, the same infrastructure, and it's kind of the same types of a computer application that, that is suitable with that sort of an infrastructure. So it's becoming more and more important. And of course, it's also a matter of national competitiveness and national security. So it's also a global geopolitics kind of a topic. So this is a conference that started out with probably just like several hundred people in the beginning. And I think this year they expect 12,000 people to attend. It's in Denver. It's like the biggest geek fest on the planet. Before COVID, it actually hit 16,000. And then they skipped a year or two and it's been like building back up. And I, I got to jump in because I think one of the things that is pretty amazing about it is, yeah, I came from retail trade shows that some of them might have a couple thousand or 3,000 people attend. Some were much larger, but you know, they're selling so many of those things, whatever those things are, they're selling millions and millions of them. I don't think that we're up to a million supercomputers, depending <laughs> on computer to be. Um, no, that's right. That's right. In fact, so you're getting attendance like that for a, what many people might say, oh, that's kind of an obscure topic, but I don't think it is. Right, right, right. No, it's not. And in fact, it impacts a lot of everything that we do. Mm -hmm. you take a photo with your phone, some AI is in action there and some mathematical equations are being done. And in fact, you could really define supercomputing as the application of mathematical modeling to science and nature and business processes and phenomena. And if you do it that way, then there, then it becomes a lot more pervasive. But the tippy top supercomputers, they're like anywhere from $50 million to $500 million. So you're not going to go sell many of them. And usually the funding process for these things is highly visible, a really big deal. At this point, really, the really super large companies have those and so do national labs and governments, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing about this conference is that it's an academic conference with an exhibit attached to it. Mm. So it still retains that academic flavor. As I like to say, this is a market where the customers know more about your products than you do because they're just so deep into it. They understand the architecture. They understand that. So how do you sell something to the customer when the customer is so mm -hmm. such an expert at it, right? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. changes the flavor. It therefore rewards technical depth. It rewards real conversation. They're not mm -hmm. so responsive to claims and assertions. And so it, the flavor is different. Engineering is very much part of marketing. I have to admit, I mean, I've missed being in consumer markets because I go to shows and the shows are exhibits and they may have a very small educational thing attached. Even the direct marketing conference, 
small educational thing attached. Right. But, and most of that education in those things is from vendors who want you to call them. And so they're new business development style presentations. And I've missed that kind of serious look. Speaking of being interested mm-hmm. in liking the category that you're in, I've missed that kind of serious look at, okay, well, let's talk about housewares and what's going on. And let's really try to sort it out. Not to sell you something, but to actually come to understand something. That's and, right. Uh, that's right. You know, that's right. It doesn't happen in consumer goods. It just doesn't happen. Now, part of that really is the dollar value, and part mm-hmm. of that is the and therefore the sell cycle. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to fund a fifty million dollar project or a hundred million dollar project, that's going to take some time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By the time you get the funding, it takes some time. When you place your order, you're not going to get it tomorrow. It's going to be like the top supercomputers that are being built right now. We're talking about 70, 120 cabinets. Mm-hmm. Like these are like multiple trucks that need to arrive and you need to like assemble them on the spot. And it's never been done before because they're so big. So you're kind of in uncharted territory. But as a result, if it's going to take you two and a half years before you have the system, you need to understand the roadmap. You're not buying what vendors offer today. Mm -hmm. You're buying what they will be offering in two years. Mm -hmm. So the discussion is all about whose roadmap matches with whose and what is the likelihood of success and what is the... What is plan B? There's a notion of an acceptance after you have it, the customer has to accept it. So that means revenue recognition issues. It means like, how do you fund these things? The supply chain management, it's becomes really complicated really fast. But what is also interesting is in fact, the growing importance of marketing in this market. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't really apply the four Ps that we've talked about, yeah. you run the risk of being a lot more in the weeds with features and not enough benefits, with the capabilities for capabilities sake and not really meeting the pain points and in fact, business requirement, because these are, right. you know, these are no joke. There are serious business requirements for it. Yeah. If the nuclear stockpile management of the country depends on it, well, you better get there within the time frame that you need to. So marketing needs to speak to that and needs to have those kind of values. We did that. We actually had, a, had an episode of marketing in HPC in one of the HPC podcasts, and it's a growing requirement. So when you do go to this exhibit, you actually do see some fabulous marketing being done by really smart people that is just beautiful to watch, yeah. Well, and I think it's important to everybody understand that, I mean, the listeners understand that, I mean, not all marketing happens at county fairs where some hawker sits in a tent and showing you that his sham wows soaking <laughs> up a lot of water. And I mean, that's one flavor of, but. That is one flavor, yeah. This is definitely not a buy one, get one free. <laughs> no, no bogos on this one in the uh, world. But. Well, it's interesting because the other thing I was lecturing about for my students on today was consultative selling. And that's mm. where, I mean, I learned my approach to sales from when we worked together, which it was consultative selling. You know, we had to be experts in our product, but our clients were experts in their, whatever their scientific challenge was. And the question was matching our consultative experience with what they were doing. Does this computer make sense for it? What, I mean, is this the right thing to do that? And I loved that process. And I think 
it's really very effective. And I think it actually is very effective in all sales, but there's a lot of flavors of people that sell things. And some people yeah. want to get rich quick and, and kind of violate that. But it actually was a really good foundation for me to learn to sell uh, $3 sponges on TV. Right. A lot of people yeah. laugh at because it seems like those shouldn't go together at all. Um, a lot of people laugh because it would seem like that would lead my work to be too intellectual or too overthought. Mm-hmm. And certainly I might think a lot of that stuff. But on the other hand, what I found was the process may happen fast for somebody, but it's still the same fundamental issues. Does this matter to me? Why should I care about this? Are you going to help me with what I need? And in all marketing, it's all a question, figuring out what is it the customer needs? How's this supercomputer going to be contribute to them? I mean, I always loved what we discovered in our work about how valuable it was to offload the scientist from having to worry, become a computer jockey. That's they right. They want to do their That's science. Right. They don't want to have to learn how to run a computer. They want to do their science. Okay, so how do you deal with that? That kind of issue can really free up people and became a good value issue. Yeah, absolutely. So there are elements of luxury marketing because mm-hmm. of the dollar value and the process that you go through. But the other thing that's happening, to your point, the complexity of these things is basically two different ways of going to market. One is the consultative selling. What are you trying to accomplish? Let's together assemble all the 15 different vendors that need to come together with you, Mr. Customer, Mrs. Customer, and build design and build something that you want. That's like one end of the spectrum. The other one is that, okay, we did that now. And now you've got ongoing needs. Something breaks, you want to replace it. That does not need to be consultative. Let me have an e-commerce platform that just frictionless way of fulfilling your ongoing needs. Yeah. Now, if you get both of them there, then I think you are, you've got enough variables to optimize the cost and the value. That makes complete sense. Yeah. yeah. The e-commerce part suddenly has a lot of the flavors of what we've talked about. Now it's digital right. advertising and now it's, right. you know, the metrics and the analytics and reporting and all of that. Yeah. Can you use BOGOs with that? I'm just saying. In that aspect, if you are, yeah. maybe not quite BOGO, but you certainly could have like special of the week. Mm-hmm. Right. You certainly, and a lot of that is really driven by the supply chain. Mm -hmm. If you happen to have an opportunity to provide something that is really special, but, and it genuinely is like for a limited period, because somehow, because supply chain isn't always exact, managing forecasting is not always exact. So if you happen to have too many disk drives today, right now, for example, there's a big shortage in GPUs, the kind of accelerators that that companies like NVIDIA and AMD and Intel sell for deep learning for AI. Those are pretty hot. If if you can get your hands on them, it improves your stock price because you have them, right? So, So that stuff is like the other end of the spectrum. It's a shortage. So the market price has gone up for it and allocation is challenging. A lot of that stuff has a lot of the flavors of B2C, whether it's luxury because of scarcity or it's like frictionless because it is really more towards commodity. Well, and I would say, I mean, do you get some of that attempt to, I don't know, flatten out the sales bumps with things like you look at signing up for an annual filter replacement program or things like that. I mean, I'm not sure what is around these computers anymore, but I would expect that there's probably some things around where people could sign up for a regular thing. Some things are are in that category, like storage, mm-hmm. because we all know that it, with computer storage, nobody wants to delete anything. Right. And if you are a big shop, you're going to have a steady stream of storage coming in. 
And then you need an upgrade mechanism and the old stuff has to get migrated to the new stuff. So those guys are pretty close to like a subscription model, not quite because it's all still highly manually organized, but you know that the demand is going to be there for sure. Yeah. 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 Interesting, it's, isn't it? Yeah. It is interesting. And I think it's especially interesting because marketing is just marketing. There are flavors that go with it though. And I think as you were talking, one of the flavors I was reminded of is if your tone is out of whack with your customers, that can be a problem. Like I know when I went into sales, one of the things I got advised is always keep a tie around that has gravy on it because <laughs> you want your engineering customers to kind of see you as one of them. And I didn't literally take that idea, but I think it, it I got exactly what it meant, which is if you're dressing Gucci and you're selling to engineers that often leads them to question your credibility. And so you have to kind of understand who your customer is in order to speak in their language in ways that might achieve the same thing. It's done five or six or 10 different other ways in different markets, but you have to figure out how that works in this market of people buying around or for supercomputers. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You want to demonstrate to the customer that you understand mm -hmm. what they are trying to accomplish and what they're going through is sort of a reminder of the Hewlett Packard model of the next bench over is that you'd like the company to basically look like the person that's sitting next to the customer doing the same thing and has that kind of intimacy and that kind of understanding. If you do, then you're great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. That's great. So let's get to specifics. You can might as well announce the specifics. When is this show it is November 12th to 17th. It's at the Colorado Convention Center in Denver. They switch it to different cities every year. So last year was in Dallas. This year is in Denver. Next year, I think it's going to be Atlanta. And they always go with cities that are not exactly like huge in terms of trade shows. Not They, they kind of avoid Vegas and New York City or such. But yeah, it's and it's an international conference. A lot of people show up from Europe, from Asia. It's like the show to go to in the supercomputing world. <laughs> Every year they have, it's the whole show is like more 10 days because they have tutorials and programs around it. They also do a computer network at the show called Cynet for supercomputing something net. And for those two weeks, it is the fastest network on the planet. <laughs> Great. All right. As we get towards closing, I got to tell a very funny, I'll try to make it short story. Go for it. Go so for it. Yeah. When I first got involved with supercomputers, I was working with a Cray when we brought a Cray into general. Uh -huh. I'd been on the team that evaluated which computers we wanted to buy. And I kind of was the technical guy on the West Coast as far as usage of it, not compute, not where to install it and things like that, uh, how to use it. And so I had to go out to Cray fairly often. Then I went out to a Cray conference. So I went to this conference. There were probably 600 people went to the conference and it was all about supercomputing in Minneapolis and we're in some big hotel and they've got one of those massive ballrooms. So we've got half the ballroom and we're in there listening to the type of arcane papers you would obviously listen to at a conference. Mm -hmm. Right on. Yeah. yeah. And it, right on the other side of the portable dividers that closed off the conference room was the Mary Kay conference. And <laughs> oh, they're singing and jumping up and down and they're chanting positive things and lots of pink Cadillacs in the parking lot. So while somebody's talking about error rates of conversion and calculating physical properties of fluid dynamics on the other side, we've got <laughs> and foundation and a lot of cheers for whoever got the latest Cadillac. So it was pretty funny. 
All right. So next time we're going to have to do quantum computing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So maybe on that note, we can end this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening and for being on. And thank you, Doug. Thank you. Until next time. All right. Take care. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.